Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, Texas. My name is Susan Yarbrough, and I am the very lucky student intern minister in this dynamic and activist congregation. First Unitarian Universalist Church is a church of deeds, not creeds, and we're part of a liberal religious tradition that encourages the application of reason to faith and welcomes people from all theistic and non-theistic traditions, including but not limited to Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, neo-paganism, and atheism and agnosticism. I'd like to extend an especially warm welcome to those of you who are visiting for the first time. Part of our tradition holds that there is a divine spark in everyone, so in keeping with that tradition, please take a moment to turn to those around you and greet their spark with the warmth of your own spark. The flaming chalice is a symbol of our faith, and we light it at the beginning of every worship service. As Susan Thompson leads us, let's say together the words printed in your bulletin. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Every Unitarian Universalist church goes through a lengthy process of developing its own mission statement. We have written ours on the upper wall on your left, and we say it together every Sunday to remind each other of our communal purpose. Let's do that now as Susan leads us. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Both the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures have interesting ways of expanding the meaning of a word until a much larger concept emerges. You language and grammar buffs will recognize this as something like the literary device of metonymy, where something is not called by its name, but by something closely associated with it, such as using the word boots for the army or suits for Wall Street bigwigs. For our purposes today, let's take the very word, word. In Hebrew, the word for word is devar, but by implication and connotation and usage, its meaning is a matter or a cause. Early in the 30th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites are commanded to listen to and pay attention to the voice of their God. As chapter 30 progresses, they are told that the voice of the holy is not something that is hidden or far off or in heaven or across the sea. Instead, they're told that devar, the word, the matter of hearing the holy, is very close to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. In Greek, the language in which many of the Christian scriptures were written, the word that is often used for word is logos. It gained widespread usage in Greek philosophy beginning in the 6th century B.C. when it originally meant a principle of order and knowledge. But by the time of Christ, the wider meaning of logos was the generative principle of the universe. 
The first chapter of the Gospel of John states that Logos, the Word, was made flesh and lived among us. These are two useful and provocative ideas, that what is holy is as close as our breath and our heart, and that the generative principle of the universe lives among us in every human being. Here ends the reflection on two of our sources. Every week in our service, we have a time of quietness together, and each of us enters it in his or her or their own way. For me, it's with prayer, and for others, it is through meditative stillness or simply following our breath to a place of calmness. After today's prayer, you're invited to to light candles of joy, sorrow, hope, memory, concern, or celebration. Simple directions that will accommodate everyone easily are found in the italics in your order of service. Please enter into this time of quietness as I offer a prayer. God of many names, whose highest name and form is human love, the prayers of the people are gathered before you in the midst of a great cloud of witnesses as our joys and our concerns are made known. Thank you for new beginnings, day by day and moment by moment. Thank you for the easily received gifts of love and joy and forgiveness, as well as for the painful teaching gifts of pain and resentment and separation. Thank you for this congregation and its ministry to this community and to each other. And thank you for all people of good intentions, goodwill, and good hearts, wherever they may be. Kindly and gently remind us of your presence everywhere and invite us to reach for you, to speak to you, and to listen to you, even though you are frustratingly and maddeningly mysterious to us. If you have hands, Hold us in the palm of them. If you have a heart, keep us close to it. If you have tears, weep for us when we resist and move away from you. And if you have ears, hear us now as we thank you for the new beginning that is in every breath and every step. Amen. My dad was a proud graduate of Texas A&M University and an equally proud World War II veteran. And even though he had no desire to be a career Army officer, military language and images often sneaked into his weekday and even his Sunday conversations. For example, he often referred to the landscaping employees who put the final aesthetic touches on the many churches he built in the Dallas area as the gardening platoon, (laughs) or the people who worked out at his fitness center as the health nut regiment, or the deacons who passed the plates at my parents' Baptist church as the offering squad. (laughs) 
I had been thinking about my dad and his self-effacing humor a lot in early August. And on a Tuesday night before the weekly Wednesday morning ministers meeting here at First UU, where we were going to plan this year's worship calendar and preaching dates, I dreamed that Maestro Brent Baldwin and Reverend Barnhouse and Reverend Jimerson and I were all dressed in ROTC uniforms <laughs> and gathered around a table in a room that had a sign on the door saying, Ministerial Battalion. <laughs> The dream ended there, but the real life, uh, at the real-life meeting, Colonel Barnhouse asked me to preach five times this year. Maybe I should promote her to general, um, with today being the, the first one. And I was delighted to discover that tonight is the beginning not only of the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah, but also the first day of Muharram, which is the first month in the Islamic calendar. Both of these celebrations of a new religious year are um, both of both of these are celebrations of a new religious year. And all the, although the Jewish and Islamic calendars are both lunar, each calendar has undergone some clerical tinkerings and cultural adjustments, so that the coincidence of these two days of new beginnings happens only once every 33 years. It, it's sobering to think I will not be alive for the next one, but it, so it's very good, very good to be talking on this one. It, it would be possible for me to give an entirely informational sermon about these two significant religious days, but I'm not going to do that because what I really want to do is talk only a bit about the nature of Rosh Hashanah and Muharram, but much more about what it means to begin again and how we can do that with the kind of fresh eyes and openness to the holy that will plant and water seeds and then harvest gifts of the Spirit for years to come. Let me begin by sharing some learning about Muharram, the first month of the Islamic year, about which I knew very little until I took a course at seminary in global religions this past spring. I was reasonably familiar with Eid al-Fitr, which marks the end of the holy month of Ramadan and its unique spiritual practices, and with Malid, which commemorates the birth of the prophet Muhammad. The word Muharram means sacred. The month is referred to as Allah's month, and the tenth day of it, Ashura, is especially significant as a day of fasting. As many of you know, my spiritual roots in Judaism are long and deep, and even though polls consistently show that most Jews think Passover is the best holiday in the religious year, I was always most filled with joy and anticipation as Rosh Hashanah approached. The Hebrew words Rosh Hashanah mean the beginning or the head of the year. And in ideas that they can easily comprehend, young Jewish children are taught that Rosh Hashanah is a celebration of the birthday of the world. Every year on this day, I remember a day many years ago when I watched a friend of mine gather her three grandchildren under the age of five on Rosh Hashanah morning, fix pancakes for them in the shape of the Star of David, and teach them how to sing, Happy Birthday, Dear Universe, Happy Birthday to You. By counting from the creation of Adam down through all the begats and all the ages of the people in the Hebrew scriptures and ending with Jesus, 
very conservative Jewish scholars have come to the conclusion that starting tonight at sundown, the world will celebrate birthday number 5,777. Scientists, of course, tell us that the age of the Earth is more like 4.5 billion years and that the age of the cosmos is between 10 and 20 billion years. These are interesting pieces of information about both of these great faiths, but what I most want to talk about today are the teachings of the Jewish parable called The King is in the Field. Like most parables, this is a superficially simple story, and it consists of only two sentences found within the 6,000-page body of rabbinic teachings called the Talmud. It goes like this. In the month before Rosh Hashanah, as God is traveling toward his holy city, he first stops by the fields outside the city walls where most of his people work during the day. The people go to meet him and receive him, and anyone who wants to can approach him and have an audience with him. That's the end of the story. <laughs> but, but the meanings are far deeper. Moving out of the masculinist language of Judaism and the Talmud, the parable teaches us many things, and I'm going to enumerate the five that speak to me most clearly. First, the parable of the king is in the field teaches us that what is holy is making it itself accessible to us at a level which we can understand within our small human reality. We are met in an ordinary field of the grain that feeds us because our humanity and our work in the field have value to the divine. Second, we as ordinary people have agency in whether we will approach and greet and receive what is holy. In other words, the nurturing of a relationship with what is holy depends on human initiative. And although the divine makes itself available to us, it is we ourselves who must take the step of turning toward it. And looking even deeper into the parable, we are taught, third, that our work and our workplace are where the holy can meet the mundane, where that which is holy can be seen and received. Fourth, we need not leave those ordinary places in order to seek the divine, and we are at liberty to continue our daily activities because we know that we are in the presence of what is holy. Fifth, and finally, we can have an audience with the divine simply by asking for it, and we can be heard by the divine merely by opening our literal or metaphorical mouths. Every time I think of this parable and the five lessons I draw from it, my mind immediately goes to the two Unitarian Universalist sources I mentioned earlier. The idea in Hebrew scripture that what is, what is holy is as close as our breath and our heartbeat, and the idea in Christian scripture that what is holy is embodied and lives among us in human form. Most of you have heard me talk about my East Texas grandmother, and whenever I think of scripture or write a sermon, I always think of her, for she was the one who taught me to read, beginning with verse 1 in Genesis, and she was the first and most important agent of my faith formation. 
And like most grandmothers, she could be counted on for all sorts of warmth and sympathy and empathy and unconditional love. When I was about 12 years old and was in a particularly desolate period of my life, I said to her, Nan, God feels very far away. But instead of tenderly commiserating with me, she said, Well, Susan, who moved? (laughs) At, At age 12, I could never have articulated the concept of accessible holiness. But I got Nan's message. The divine is always with us and near us, and we can reach for it and speak to it at any moment. If we feel separated from it, it's because we have moved away from it instead of toward it. Knowing this, that the holy is close and available, makes each day a new creation, an opportunity to have ordinary lives and do ordinary work with a companionable presence that feeds our soul, just as surely as did the field of grain in which the Israelites stood and welcomed divinity when they saw it in their midst. During the time of candle lighting and quiet reflection, you heard a beautiful voice sing Kol Nidre. This is a cantorial chant that is sung as the Jewish High Holy Day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, begins at sunset ten days after Rosh Hashanah. The language of Kol Nidre is Aramaic, not Hebrew. The title means all vows, and the words of it are not a prayer, but instead a rather dry legal recitation that releases those who say it from all the vows and prohibitions and oaths that they might make during the coming year. Although many anti-Semites have pointed to Kol Nidre as a reason not to trust Jews, they miss the point and fail to understand the theology behind it. Rather than being a prospective or proactive escape from responsibility, Kol Nidre is a complete radicalization of the idea of new beginnings. And its message is that we don't have to promise God or our fellow human beings anything. No right behavior, no good deeds, nothing. Instead, All we have to do is live our days with conscious awareness of the holiness that is as close as our breath and our heartbeat, and then approach it and create a relationship with it. Above the ark which holds the Torah scrolls in every synagogue in the world are the Hebrew words, Da lifne miata omed, know before whom you stand. It doesn't matter who your whom is or what you call it. God, spirit of life and love, science, human relationship, it just doesn't matter. But what does matter is that we are always standing in the midst of the holy and that we do well to look up, see it, and establish a connection with it. Come next May, I will have spent 25 of my 70 years in school, so it's no wonder that I will probably always spend my life in what my friend Barbara calls your semester mentality. (laughs) Because of that way of feeling time, September has a number of new beginning rituals for me. 
Many of them center on the theology of Rosh Hashanah that insists upon the asking for and the giving of forgiveness with people and with God. But September also prompts me to put on a light sweater on the first cool night and take a stroll down Upper Broadway or around the town common in Amherst, Massachusetts, or near the corner of 6th and Lamar to see what the local independent bookseller is featuring in its window display, and then to spend at least an hour in the store choosing a non-school book to read. I know that most of us have probably bought a book just because the title intrigued us. A few Septembers ago, I saw Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See in Brazos Bookstore in Houston and bought it on the spot. The same thing had happened in 1975 with Robert Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Mattered. That was followed the next year by Tom Robbins, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. (laughs) All of them bought and devoured because of a title. And most recently, this happened last September with John McQuiston's Always We Begin Again, a small treatise on spirituality which was first published in 1996. It escaped my notice until last year, but it has taught me much about new beginnings. These spiritual and literary rituals of September September help me experience a sense of new beginnings and a lifting of my spirit. But they also come with a tinge of edginess and wariness. In the current issue of Quest, the publication of our UU Church of the Larger Fellowship, Reverend Craig Scott points out that new beginnings give us a chance to start over, to reinvent ourselves, and to experience theological concepts such as forgiveness and redemption. But new beginnings can also be very scary, especially when they're necessitated by a painful event such as the end of a marriage or a relationship or the death of someone we love or the loss of a job or a friendship or a basis of faith, or the selling of one's home and moving into a retirement community. And even when we can finally move beyond our pain and see that a new beginning will create a liberating opportunity to grow, we almost immediately find out that it is a lot of work. New beginnings not only let us ask, but they also force us to ask, How do we want to start over in our physical life, our emotional lives, our spiritual lives? We have agency. How do we want to shape this starting over? Will we dare to pause from the complicated work of beginning again, look up, and see the divine and the holy in our midst? And if so, will we move toward it? Or will we retreat to the deceptive safety of the walled city where we normally live? I believe so strongly that when we make these moves, risk these new beginnings, and take these leaps of faith, we are transformed. By now, most of us know that no one thing expresses all the parts of our personalities. In my own life, I found satisfaction and self-expression in things such as teaching, lawyering, judging, 
gardening, writing, and taking my certified therapy dog, Farley, to visit patients in hospitals and nursing homes, and now ministry. No one of these things was or is a complete expression of my personality, but in the aggregate, they and the aspirations and trepidations that accompanied the beginning of each one of them have changed me. Each one involved fear and self-doubt. Each required a small or large leap of faith out of my comfort zone and a desire to learn and thrive in a new space. Each one found me reaching for what I imagined God to be and asking what was the larger purpose in what I was doing. And each one was a new beginning that let me become more fully who I am. As I celebrate the Jewish and Muslim New Year with friends of both faiths, I'm thankful for new beginnings, for all those leaps of faith that all of us have made, for the human and divine safety nets that catch us and calm our fears, for spiritual practices that sustain us, and for the wisdom that tells us, always, we begin again. And most of all, I'm grateful that what is holy is right in front of us in the field and in this church, that it is accessible, and that we are invited to move toward it in hope, in faith, and in conversation. May we look up from our work to see the holy standing in our midst. May we move toward it. And may we always begin again in love, in forgiveness, in holiness, and in the astonishing wholeness of our life together. Amen. Now please join Susan Thompson as she leads us in the words with which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. And now may the grace of the Spirit continue to bless this bold and courageous congregation. May each of us look up from our work, recognize the holy in our midst, and move toward it. And may we always be willing to begin again. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.